welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano in our second in-person live episode since uh, since the pandemic. You're looking great, David. It's great to be in the same room with you. I was actually outside a little bit yesterday, got some vitamin D, all kinds of good things. Things are returning to uh, normal in some ways, which is uh, the topic of our episode, about, about things at least slowly getting back to normal, at least uh, in the United States and the UK, we're seeing the beginnings of, of, of normalcy, as it were. Or, as lots of people speculated, have speculated over the past 15 months, the emergence of the new normal. The, new, the new normal, right. And so we want to talk about a return to normalcy um, and, and, to, and to sort of think about, about other points in American history where, where people have... Uh, Americans have, have tried to return to to, uh, to normal, whatever that means. Uh, now, British listeners may be offended with our usage of the word normalcy, which is a very particular Americanism. Shall we talk about the origin of normalcy as a word? Uh, David, I, I look to you as oh, the person okay. who offends our British listeners more than me. Well, that's... that's <laughs> it's my job. Uh, maybe it's not. Anyway, um, the word... You exceptionalist... I got British citizenship, so I'm not, anyway. But um, normalcy uh, is is most associated as a word with uh, the election of Warren G. Harding or the campaign of Warren G. Harding in 1920. Um, it actually became "Return to Normalcy" because it's actually the slogan of his campaign. Uh, he gives a God, what a boring slogan. It's the, it wasn't the most exciting election anyway, uh, and it comes from a. Sp- Starts with a speech he gives in Boston in May of 1920 to the Home Market Club, which sounds like it was probably a very exciting place to be. It was kind of a pro-tariff isolationist group. Um, it would have been the Home Market Club <laughs> in Boston. Yes, uh, but, 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 but Mr. Harding was from Ohio, so I'm, yeah, I'm not sure. Anyway. Um, but of course, just to, for context, this is, you know, at, right, the World War II, World War One has just ended. The, the pandemic, uh, the, the flu pandemic, which had killed you know, millions of people around the world, uh, is, is starting to abate at this point. Um, people are sort of looking forward to, to the, the world after the First World War and after this, this pandemic. And he says, uh, America's present need is not heroics, but healing, not, not nostrums, but normalcy, not revolution, but rest." but restoration, not agitation, but adjustment, not surgery, but serenity, not the dramatic, but the dispassionate, not experiment, but equipose, not submergence in internationality, but sustainment in triumphant nationality. Which is a whole lot of mostly nonsense, uh, but... Uh, Yeah, although uh, one important uh, part of the context that you didn't mention, David, but... uh, I think bears thinking about is, you know, he talks about not revolution because, of course, the Russian Revolution is underway, uh, or began in mm. 1917, and is in fact American troops from 1920 were in Russia, um, at that point. So, so uh, I think that 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 aspect of it is quite interesting. Yeah. Well, why didn't he say normality? Do you think? Well, that was a people pointed that out at the time, right? And people said like. The, the word is normality, not normalcy. And, and, and he said, no, normalcy is a word. And people, he, there was actually a fight about it at the time about what word was the right word. And, and he actually had a dictionary that had normalcy in it, but didn't have normality in it. And it was because it was an old dictionary. There's debates about sort of like it was an American term that developed in the 
mid-19th century, uh, but it's most associated with this particular moment with Harding. And he defended his use of the word. He said it's a very good word. He liked it. Um, Do you like it? I don't know. I, okay. I don't really care. <laughs> I, I think, you know, I, I, I'm... I'm uh, in my use of language, if people understand what the hell I'm saying, that's good enough for me. Um, Apologies, listeners, for the sirens you can hear outside. Well, yes, <laughs> probably not normal somewhere for somebody. Um, you know, thinking about, about this moment, what going back to normal, though, means, you know, we've got the pandemic that just ended there. Um, we obviously had uh, this enormous, devastating war. You've had the revolution in Russia. You've got the first Red Scare in the United States. They had the bombing actually on Wall Street in 1920, you know, a kind of revolutionary act. You had Eugene Debs also running for president from federal prison. Um, you know, what Harding is calling back to and saying, look, we've had a very chaotic and a very disruptive years. Let us return to something before that. You know, and the question that I have is sort of, what is the point before that he's, he's referring, what, what is sort of the reset point? Is it going to go back to 1916, which might be one way of thinking about what normalcy looked like, or is it going to be going back something before that? You know, and in some ways I think what Harding is, is actually pointing to is saying, actually, let's go back to 1898 or something. Let's just go back to uh, sort of a pre-progressive era. Uh, now, he doesn't sort of articulate that in this uh, in this speech, uh, but you know, what is he looking back for, backward to in this sort of golden age before uh, the before the before the First World War and before I, the I, pandemic? Politicians do two things when they make are candidates for president. Mm. They often look forward. Uh, and, and Harding is doing that in the, mm. the speech, in fact. Yeah. He's saying, if you will, back to the future. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But they often look back. Mm. In fact, President Trump was a big one for looking back and had an idealized past. But I, I don't think there's a specific date mm. that they're looking back to so much as an idealized time in the past. As you know, people look back all the time and think, oh, well, they, let's go back to that. But not, not. Yeah. So, so you may not have a specific date in mind, is what, what I'm Although saying. Although, you know, just thinking about what Harding does during his relatively brief presidency, you know, part of that is a rejection not only of internationalism, um, a rejection of, of Wilsonian foreign policy, but a kind of a rejection of progressive thought more generally, right? And that, that the kind of governments federal government's role is going to be a very hands-off uh, of, of, of you know, what's good for business is good for the United States model of, of the role of the federal government. And so the, you know, the, the kind of regulatory state that, that Teddy Roosevelt and, and Taft and then Wilson had, had put in place, you know, I think Harding is a sort of step backwards towards that in terms of who he is as a, a, a politician. Um, and the kinds of policies that get put forward under both and, you know, him and, and Coolidge afterwards. Um, you know, and if you actually look at that election, both of the candidates are articulating versions of that. The, the Democratic candidate, in some ways, is actually not that different from Harding. A Democratic candidate was James Cox. Uh, both of them are from Ohio. Both of them were seen as sort of land centrists within their parties. Um, 
they're both former journalists. You know, they're both they were neither of them were sort of ideologues. Um, and you know that election um, didn't demonstrate. You know, there wasn't a huge amount of voter enthusiasm for either of those candidates. There's pretty low voter turnout in in 1920. Actually, very low voter turnout. Now, part of that is you have a whole slew of new voters, many of whom decided not to vote. That's to say, that's the first election in which white women were allowed to vote, and so there's a change in the size of the, the eligible voting population. Um, but there's also, I think, a dissatisfaction with politics evoked in that particular moment that, that in the aftermath of, of the First World War, people are, are um, disenchanted with what the government, and especially national government, culminates in. I'm uh, struck by in thinking about your comments, David, about the 2020 election. And, you know, mm. we've talked about Joe Biden's presidency and the beginning of Joe Biden's presidency and the, the echoes of the New Deal and everything else mm. in, in recent episodes. So I don't want to, we don't need to cover that ground again. But I wonder if, um, in the light of the COVID pandemic in particular, but Trumpism more generally. I mean, mm. the, the Trump years certainly gave us plenty of material, but people were, people were tired in mm. November of 2020 of everything. And, and the, the appeal of Joe Biden, I mean, Joe Biden didn't say, let's go back to normalcy or normality, but to some extent, Biden's... Um, apparent blandness and reassuring presence mm. as this um, older white male figure of the establishment, non-threatening, avuncular. Um, part of Biden's appeal was, although it wasn't articulated in this way, was normalcy yeah. that he represented, which was, a, if you will, a Harding-like normalcy. So rather than Rooseveltian radicalism, yeah. part of but I don't want to push this too far, well, but I there think was the contrast a, between Biden and, and Trump was quite striking in that regard. There were commentators that noticed there was a surge in Google searches for normalcy during the election last year. Right, okay. Uh, and so I think that was something people were, were looking for in, in Biden was, you know, above and beyond the specific policies that he was advocating for, that he represented a, a um, sort of a model of politician that would be Normal, boring, I don't know, pick the words you want. And whether that his actual presidency is going to turn out that way, who knows. But in some ways, that's what he represented. You know, when Harding ran, part of the reason people voted for him is that they said he looks kind of presidential, you know, and he sounds appropriately boring. Um, you know, that he sort of evoked this, uh, you know, model of, of a sort of a, a pre-progressive president from Ohio, which, like, you know, late 19th century health presidents from Ohio. Um, and in the same way that Biden evokes a sort of a, a, an older generation of, of politics. Right, I mean, I think we need to consider the degree to which the uh, the 1920s mm -hmm. and the, the aftermath of the last pandemic that the country experienced uh, is, is a blueprint for what the 2020s are going well, to be, or not. The, the AIDS pandemic would be a Sure. Okay. Okay. Yes. Apologies. Um, but but as an appropriate moment, a, turn, a return mm. to normalcy. Um, I think that uh, many many commentators have made the observation that that is the, um, you know, the 
this is the appropriate mm. um, kind of moment to learn from it in thinking about what the post-COVID world will look like in the United States. Mm. Before we do that, though, um, are there any other moments in American history that fit that we might be ignoring? I, I don't think the ends of wars are the same thing, but maybe you disagree. Yeah. Um, you know, 1945 seems like a possible other candidate, but particularly if we see 1945 as not only the end of the Second World War, but also, you know, the depression that preceded it. Mm. You know, so there's a period of profound upheaval from 1929 to 1945, well, arguably longer. I mean, uh, but but I, I can't think, I'm struggling for, for and maybe the aftermath of 9-11? Yeah, I think aftermath of 9-11 one, but thinking about the end of wars generally as a, a return to normalcy. One of the things I think that distinguished the United States from many other countries in, in the 19th and, and to a lesser extent early part of the 20th centuries is, is how small the peacetime army was and then sort of how big the wartime armies became and how quickly they demobilized. Right? When we think about sort of the end of the Civil War, you know, a couple months after Appomattox, the United States Army has shrunk down to 10% of what it was because they, they, you know, they demobilized very quickly. In the, both in the First and Second World Wars, they demobilized very, very quickly. And I think that speaks to, um, and one could argue whether those demobilizations happened potentially too quickly, but I think it speaks to this idea that wartime is an aberration and we need to return to a, a, a peacetime footing as quickly as we can. Um, yeah, but I don't think in this context it's the same, it's the same thing. It's not comparable mm. because, um, and I, I take your point, I think the way American wars end a demobilization is, is an important phenomenon. I don't think it has much to offer us in this moment as mm. we seem to be coming out of COVID because those mobilizations, significant as they were, didn't impact everybody in the United States in the same way that COVID has mm. or, the, or the flu epidemic yeah, of 1918, 19... Well, yeah, the interesting thing, though, about... Yeah, I think that's right. But I think think thinking about this normalcy in, in 1920, one of the things people have noted about that pandemic and that election is how little the pandemic came up in the election. And Alfred Crosby's written about this, and he said basically Americans during that election didn't talk about the pandemic. They talked a lot about the war that had ended and about the effect of the war and the effect of, of other kinds of policy decisions. But the pandemic was not a, a divisive political issue in any meaningful way. Part of it was because much of that pandemic was dealt with at the state and local level and not by the federal government. But it wasn't, you know, to the extent that, that Cox and Harding were, were, were distinguishable from one another, their, their ways in which they dealt with the influenza pandemic wasn't one of those distinctions. Um, which I think is striking that, 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 that people had, uh, you know, how quickly people had, had pushed the influenza pandemic, as devastating as that was, into the background. Um, yeah, although I, so I'd offer two responses to that. One is clearly we're in a moment mm. where 
one only needs to look at the prolonged debates and, in fact, conflicts that are going on in the United States mm -hmm. over mask wearing mm -hmm. and how politicized that has been to so see the degree to which this pandemic has mm -hmm. been political and become yet another front in the culture sure. and political wars in the United States. Well, that goes elsewhere. I mean, there's, there's some similar debates uh, at a much lower level here. Uh, but on the other hand, I was looking at some polling the other day. I was reading on the... the mayoral election in New York. Hmm. It's coming up, the primary's coming up. And only 11% of voters, in a story I saw, uh, identified um, COVID as one of the issues, main, most important issues of the campaign. Now hmm. maybe that's because of it's, it's a local campaign, and a lot of the other issues they were talking about, the economy, crime, etc., arguably are COVID-related. So, so COVID, it depends on how you, you want to define COVID and the, and the pandemic. But what struck me was the degree to which, if we take that poll seriously, mm. that voters, at least in that election, quite a significant mm. election in quite a significant place, seem to be willing to put, it's a return to normalcy, if you yeah, will, yeah. in the sense that the other issues that tend to, to animate people in, in local elections in New York City seem to be a, a higher than, more important than COVID. Yeah, to be sure. So, so yeah. I, I it's still too early to tell because mm. I think COVID was definitely an issue in the 2020 presidential oh, election. Yes. And it's clearly, um, as I said, if we just take the uh, controversy over mask wearing or vaccination mm. or whatever, um, in, in contemporary American politics, it clearly seems to be, to be uh, quite an urgent political issue. Mm. Um, but maybe we'll leave it behind pretty quickly politically. I don't know. I mean, yeah. it, it, I mean, going back to the 1920 example, thinking about how successful they were in returning the normal, what did, did, did if, if people in voting for Harding were, were, were saying, look, we want normalcy, whatever normalcy is, were they able to achieve normalcy in the 1920s, right? Were they able to return to whatever that point is, whatever normal looks like? And uh, in some ways they did. Right? I mean, you, you think about sort of the kinds of government policies that are enacted, whether it's sort of a hands-off economic approach or foreign policy or, or what have you, uh, depending on which part of the foreign policy you're looking at. Um, but there are other ways in which you know, things are, are change, still ch changing quite dramatically independently of, of political processes, whether that has to do with increased urbanization, technological changes, um, you know, and other steps that really made the 20s look very different than the 19-teens. Um, you know, and so, so even if people want to go back, things are going to, the future is going to be different than the past. Well, we never go back. back right, we never, yeah. you, and yeah. going back is impossible. So we'll never go back yeah. to the way life was, you know, you know. pre-COVID. Yeah. It, it, it won't be the same. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, we're going to have meetings on Zoom and teams probably for the rest of our careers. We won't do them exclusively the way we did mm. in the past 15 months. But, you know, we've talked about this in the past, yeah. possibly on the podcast. Um, you know, academic conferences aren't going to look the same. I think academic conferences will come back, but I think there will be an online element, mm. I think, forevermore. And I think we've gained some things and we've lost some yeah. things. But you, you never actually go back, yeah. even when you hearken to, uh, to go back, because nobody actually wants to. You can't go back. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you mentioned other moments in American history where people sort of do 
have this, evoke the same sentiment. And 9-11, I think, is a good one, where there was, you know, obviously, a, 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 like the month immediately post-9-11, in which things were, were massively disrupted with, you know, all the airlines were shut down, the various other kinds of things. Um, you know, and people sort of point to the, yeah, there was the World Series when that resumed right. as being sort of a point, like, oh, this is evidence that we're back to normal. Whatever, whatever normal means. But even then, that was a still a very, we were living in a very different world, even if we now had airlines and baseball uh, than it was before 9 11. You know, and, and it, the world looks and, and feels different after that moment, uh, even if people are content to call it normal again. I mean, I think the world we're going to emerge in a post-pandemic world is going to be very different, not only in the United States and in the UK, but really around the globe. And I think that the pandemic may be nearing its conclusion in, in a few countries, but it's uh, far from over in the rest of the world. Well, and I think that's a really important point when you think about this podcast, I, and that was one of the things I wrote down. Hmm. Uh, given this, <laughs> the globalized world we live in, which is very different from 1920 in that respect. Hmm. Um, I don't know, they had a world war. They had well, a pretty global world. But whether we can actually say it's ending or we're coming out of it, hmm. because whether if you're coming out of it local, it's a bit like the way here in the UK over the past 15 months, we've had local lockdowns, we've had national lockdowns within the four nations that make up the UK, we've had um, we've had UK-wide restrictions, you know, but... but Take that as almost a metaphor for the globe at the moment. Mm. So, so the fact that we in the U.S. and in the U.K., because of the success of the vaccination programs, seem to be coming out of this. Well, we know about the, the um, uh, variants emerging in different parts of the world that, that um, might be more virulent. Um, it's, and, and we know about the uh, unequal distribution of vaccines globally mm. at the moment. And the, you know, the, most of humanity hasn't been vaccinated yet. So it, it's not as simple as saying... Oh well, I can go to Target now, and I don't have to wear a mask, and I can go out to Applebee's. Mm. Um, I, I, that's not going to be normal, um, or that might be normal. That's that's a kind of normal, but we may look back on this as you know. There was a time last sort of August September when it seemed like here in the UK things were ending. They remember they wanted help out to eat out or whatever it was. We were all supposed to go out go out yeah. to eat, um, and then suddenly we were locked down again. Not suddenly, but eventually. Uh, uh, we may look, I hope this is not the case, but mm. we may be looking back on this podcast as premature. Yes. Well, <laughs> uh, but, but the global problem or the global pandemic as a global phenomenon, this is not over. There's no yeah. question about now, that. Yeah, looking back in any of our old podcasts when we predict the future, we're always wrong. Um, so we're I not wish. even that good on the past. Yeah. <laughs> At least have some expertise there. Um, you know, we, we point out some, some, some kind of relatively minor things that are not going to go back to normal, whatever normal is, academic conferences, those kind of Zoom calls. In terms of the big changes, though, what, what do you think, you know, will be the big social or political or economic or whatever changes that are going to result as a consequence of, of, of this transformative event that, that the entire world has gone through? Okay, before we do that... Mm. Uh, if we're using the 20s as our, if the 20s is the most appropriate uh, period of comparison, mm. I think it probably is. 
Um, Yasha Monk in the in the Atlantic a year ago, last May, wrote an, an essay about the 1920s and what we might learn from it as, as uh, in looking at the post-COVID United States. And a lot of people have commented on this. So if we look at the 20s as an example, are we, you know, some people, at least those who've remained in full-time employment, have saved tons of money, so there might be lots of spending is one mm. of the things we're speculating about. Uh, people haven't been socializing in all the ways they socialize. Uh, so the 1920s was a period of economic expansion, but it was also a period of drinking despite prohibition and socializing and sex and, and uh, you know, flappers, challenging no, right. yeah, challenge, yeah, rise of flappers and organized crime and all kinds of stuff was going on in the 1920s. Mm. And the, the argument that many have made, or at least they've raised the possibility, are we looking at a similar decade in the 2020s? And there's a case to be made for that because of all the pent-up demand, uh, financial and otherwise. Spoiler alert, the 20s don't end very well. Um. But yeah, indeed. Um, and maybe, you know, the point is who can, who can tell. And I, I think the, a crucial difference mm. between now and then is the very interconnectedness of the world and the fact that this isn't going to end tomorrow. Mm. It's not going to end when the last person in the United States or UK is vaccinated, has their second shot, mm. because it's not that simple. And it wasn't that simple in the 20, 1920s mm. either. Uh, but I could imagine, we've seen scenes, so there was a scene on Princess Street here in Edinburgh the other day of people in their thousands turning out in the street and singing. Um, the pubs are full. There, 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 there's a feel of the 1920s about some of this stuff. Mm. We'll see if we get a baby boom next summer as a result of, <laughs> of the relaxation of restrictions. Um, so so there's a, there, there are reasons to see superficial mm. comparisons. Um, and I, I think we should... I think, there are, I think that's a legitimate mm. um, comparison to make, and I think we may well see parallels there. As for your question of what things are going to change... Notwithstanding the people who want to fight about this, particularly as a front in the culture war in the United States, I'm not, I'm not sure we're going to fly without masks anytime soon. You know, and if you think about mm. the wearing of masks in East Asia as a result of the SARS epidemic and, and, and other diseases in the early part of this century, mm. and for decades, if you've been a tourist in any major city, um, not just in East Asia, but anywhere in the world, you'd see tourists often from East Asia wearing masks, and that sort of seemed, oh, kind of quaint or, or mm. weird, that's what they do. I think we're going to see that more. I, I, I don't think mask wearing is going away. I don't think it'll necessarily be the norm, mm. but I think it won't be unusual to see people wearing masks. I hope it will become unusual to fight about people wearing masks. Because, David, if you want to wear a mask, it does... It, it actually improves how I look. So well, I <laughs> In fact, David, I would I would urge you to wear <laughs> and, and to Holy paraphrase Thomas Jefferson, it neither breaks my leg nor picks my pocket if you want to wear a mask. So it does me no. In fact, it benefits me if you come in wearing a mask. Not only do I not have to look at you, but you won't be breathing on me. So exactly. so 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 hopefully, just we'll stop fighting about mask wearing. But I think mask wearing will continue, particularly when we, when people fly. Mm. Um, probably more so outside the United States than in the United States because mm. it's become such a political issue. I think we will, we may travel less, both for environmental reasons, but we also now know, you know, we recently held the Fennel Lecture. We had a Gordon Reed give a wonderful Fennel Lecture a couple of weeks ago here in Edinburgh. 
I don't think in-person lectures are going to go away. I think we want in-person lectures, mm. big events like that to come back. But by the same token, we now accept, you know, things that we, we wouldn't have given lectures online even a year ago. You wouldn't yeah. have had a big public lecture online, well, a year ago, but say Two 18 years ago. months ago, yeah. 18 months ago. Now we've come to accept that the technology works pretty well yeah. and it will undoubtedly get better. And, and you can bring people together, in fact, in quite large numbers in possibly having sort of a hybrid in-person event, but also with, a, with an online sure. element. So I think, that, I think online interactions are here to stay. You don't have to fly or take the, you don't have to fly to New York or take the train to London for an hour long meeting. Hmm. If it's an hour long meeting, you know what? You can do it at your desk. Um, and, and so I think that kind of change will result. I fear, or I, I think, and I'll stop talking because hmm. I'll turn things over to you. I think the gig economy has received a real kind of steroid injection from all this, mm. whether it's all the delivery riders, you know, delivering food, uh, you know, that was underway um, before this, but it's really taken taken root as a result of the pandemic because we've all had to do everything online and do all our shopping online and order food online and mm. everything else. Again, these things were underway well before the pandemic, but I think the kind of rise of the gig economy um, was really, uh, well, really had a surge as a result of the pandemic, and I don't think that's going anywhere. What do you think? What, 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 um, I think there's going to be some massive changes in the ways in which labor is organized yeah. in the United States and, and probably most of the sort of industrialized or post-industrialized world. You know, I think for much of the 20th century, we you know, it was based on a 40-hour work week where you went into the place of work, whether that was a factory or an office, you know, and it was a model that was built on an industrial model uh, where the workforce was men, right? And I think one of the things that we've discovered is that people can work effectively from home, people can work effectively, as challenging as working from home is for many people, I think there's going to be lots of pushback coming back to, to normal about what are the terms of working? Do I need? Do people need to commute for an hour to get to their place of employment every day, and then commute an hour home, and then do all of those those kinds of things when they can work just as effectively uh, working from a home, either part time or full time? I think so. I think that the ways in which labor is going to work is going to happen is going to be different. We're not going to see in certain in certain industries, things. right? Like obviously, if you are working in a meat packing plant or like industrial work in a, in a more traditional sense, but for people who are working in various kinds of service industries, there's gonna be whole new models. Um, not only things that resemble the pandemic sort of working style, but, but I think the return to going to the office for 40 hours a week, nine to five, I th think those days are behind us. Um, yeah, in our own School of History, Classics, and Archaeology, we've adopted a culture of like Fridays, yeah. I mean, we can't eliminate working on Fridays. We haven't embraced a four-day work week. I don't know about you, but it's, I found that really good. Now, it's allowed me to get on with my research. So to be sure. I'm still We're, working on Friday. You're doing different work. But I'm happy to ignore emails on Friday, and I think that's been great. Yeah. Um, it means the amount of emails you get Monday morning yeah. goes up like that, but eh, to be, that's, that's you know, consequences for everything. Um, but I think there's also, you know, not for, for thinking about the changes this is going to break, this... This pandemic has had 
you know, a disproportionate effect on different communities within the United States, uh, both in terms of class issues, uh, in terms of racial issues. This pandemic has, has played out in very different ways, and in terms of age, right? I think for there's and gender. A, and gender, yes, quite definitely for gender, right? And I think coming to grips with the, those experiences and those differentials in experience is going to be uh, one of the things that's going to push change in, in the, the return to normal to make it, diff, you know, to recognize those, those disparities. Um, you know, thinking about people who have graduated from either high school or, or university into this particular economy, they've got a very different world in front of them than, than the world before the pandemic. Uh, and I think figuring out how to put those pieces together uh, is going to be, be one of the big challenges going forward. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and uh, sort of middle-aged guys in permanent employment don't actually understand this world. No, uh, you no, we and don't. I, uh, because we're we don't understand very much of anything, but especially not that, yeah. in, in this, because the world, uh, I think the truth of it is we don't know. I mm. mean, I, I think I, I agree with everything you've just said. I share my own thoughts about some of the ways things are going to change, but undoubtedly, the, the world has changed in the past year and a half in way uh, the consequences are in mm. ways in which and the consequences of which we've yet to figure out mm. and it may take a couple of decades to really yeah. recognize what, what, what we've been through well I mean I think one of the things that's happened during the pandemic is it actually hasn't exacerbated lots of inequalities you know where, where um, you know think about how much more money Jeff Bezos has now than before the pandemic, uh, and how much less money lots of, of poor and working class people have as a consequence of the pandemic. It's just, it's astounding. Um, and I think there's going to be consequences for that, um, exactly what those consequences are and how those unfold. But there's going to be, I think, a, a reckoning of some kind with the kinds of, uh, of housing inequalities, the kinds of opportunities inequalities, that the United States is facing right now. Um, so I think it's going to, normal is going to be very different than, than, than we think it's going to be. Let me ask you this, David, by way of closing. Hmm. Is this pandemic the most significant event of your life, historic event that you've lived through? Oh, geez, that's a really good question. I'd say either this or 9-11 or the end of the Cold War. Those would be the three. I'm not sure I have enough perspective on any of those things yet to, to really weigh them, uh, but th those would be the three that seem well, to fact, that would be, would have been my answer, I think, in the mm. sense that um, I was thinking about my own question. Uh, I, I think it's too early to tell. I suspect it's this, but I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. You know we, we mustn't forget how many people have died in this event. Mm. You, you know, you know, and, and people who have yet to die but will. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, a, uh, it's a pretty massive um, event, um, and its consequences are pretty profound. But we, we, in truth, we don't know all of its consequences yet. You know, we, we just, we're just at the tip of the iceberg for that, I think. All right, well, we will see what changes lie in the future. In the future. Time for last drops, Frank. What you got? Uh... I want to recommend a podcast which I've recommended in the past, but it's the Slow Burn podcast from Slate. It's a season four. It's season four, okay. um, and and the it's season four, and it's about the invasion of Iraq in two thousand and three by the United States, 
and it's really, it's really, really good as as Slow Burn always is. But it, it's a bit like the one season two, which was about the, the Clinton impeachment. Uh, this is an event I lived through, of course, and have kind of memories of. Mm. I was very, <laughs> I was a fully formed adult in two thousand and three. Mm. Well certainly legally, um, and, and, and actively engaged, and this was something that occupied a huge amount of my thinking at the time, and I thought I knew a lot about it. Part of it is I've just forgotten a lot, but secondly is it's, it, 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 this, this series is teaching me how much I didn't know, mm. and it's really, really good. It, it, I, I can't recommend it enough. It's, it, it, it's excellent. So excellent. the latest series is slow burn. What about you, David? Uh, well, I'm also going to recommend a, a podcast uh, for you like, if you like podcasts with two people talking about the past. Um, this is a, a new podcast called Now and Then. Which oh, so these are two people who actually know something about, about the past, past right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just like us, but, but they know things. Um, this is uh, hosted by, by Heather Cox Richardson and Joanne Friedman, uh, both, both, both uh, you know, uh, really talented uh, historians and people who have been involved in podcasts in the past. They're both very experienced in the podcast venue. Uh, the first episode just dropped yesterday. I've downloaded it. I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. But given the quality of the work they've done in the past, and I've seen them uh, in conversation with each other, I'm very excited to see what they do with this uh, new podcast now and then. Yep. Excellent. All right, Frank. Until next week. Cheers. Cheers. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is Professor of American History and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.